Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14? We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to read uh, half of this chapter for us, but I'm going to reach back and read the, first, the last two verses of chapter 13. So I'm really going to begin 1 Samuel 13 and verse 22. Hear now God's word. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of anyone of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul." Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went out at that time among the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were the Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us courage to let these words sink into the fiber of our being, 
that we would see the world as you have wanted, the world in which Jesus ascended, sits at his Father's right hand. Would you do that? We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, in 1932, Aldous Huxley wrote a very famous dystopian novel, Brave New World. Did any of you read that in high school or college? One guy read that novel, so this is going to be a great illustration. Maybe two of you did. Awesome. Um, Well, basically, he describes this futuristic world. It's in 2500 AD, and it's a world awash in hedonism. The entire goal of this one world order is to entertain oneself, and there are sex and drugs and there's screen time. And with all of this entertainment, you begin to have these critical pieces of a society missing. I mean, gone in this new world order is any sense of personal responsibility, any sense of initiative, any chastity or piety. There's no longer marriage or parenthood or pursuit of a family. All of these things are gone in the name of entertainment. And Huxley builds this world for us to see. Now there's this wonderful interaction within this world of someone from the new world order, a woman named Lenina, and someone from the old world order, a man named John, and they are attracted to each other, but they have a very different idea of what romance is. Lenina, she's from the new world order. She wants a casual hookup with John. She doesn't want any responsibility or any strings attached. John is completely appalled by that. What he wants is a Shakespearean chase. He wants to pursue her and lay down his life for her and win her hand. And so you have these two interacting on a totally different plane. They just, they don't get each other at all. Well, there's this great scene that Huxley paints for us in which John, trying to tell Lenina what he wants, says, you know, in the place that I came from, a man would have to kill a mountain lion to earn the right to ask a woman's hand in marriage. And Lenina turns to him and says, there aren't any lions in England. Now, that's a powerful line. It's, it's a statement of fact. Lenina is saying, we actually don't have that animal. There aren't any mountain lions or lions in this region that we're calling England. But if you read between the lines, you hear Huxley saying, even if there were lions, there are no lion-like men left in England who could kill him. The whole place is awash with these soft edges of entertainment and there would be no one to stand with courage to face a line. That's a, that's a powerful line and we will yet to see how much Huxley has tabs on where this country is going. But I think that's what's happening in chapter 13. That line we read in 1322 when the writer says, there are no swords in Israel. Now, that is a statement of fact. Israel does not get to enjoy the Iron Age like the Philistines do because they have a monopoly on the blacksmiths and they won't let Israel have swords or spears and so they're stuck with farming equipment to fight with. But it's also a statement of condition. Even if you had iron swords in Israel, do you have a man left who could wield one? That's the situation of Israel right now. They're in a very dire place. Saul is camped out with his men. 
but the Philistines have come deep out of their territory on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they've come halfway into Israel's territory, and they've built a garrison on Michmash. So that's a very high cliff, and they can see over this entire highway for Israel. You can't pass in the middle of Israel from one side to the other without showing yourself to this garrison and without the Philistines being able to attack you. So they're midway in the country, just above Jerusalem, and Saul is encamped with his men two miles south in Gibeah. Saul is outmanned, he's outgunned, and many of his soldiers are leaving him. They're either running back to their homeland or they're hiding in caves in the hill country, or some of them are actually defecting to the Philistine army. They're joining the Philistines. And the Philistines see all of this, and so they begin to send out raiding parties. If they're to the north... They send three raiding parties north of them, which if Saul and his army is south, there's nothing they can do about this. And you have these three Shermans marching into the north of Israel, and they are able to do absolutely anything they want to any town or village or countryside that they meet. They wreak havoc on Israel. And while that's happening, while Israel is suffering in unspeakable ways, you just have this pitiful scene in the opening of our chapter. You have the rejected King Saul sitting with the rejected priest Ahijah, and they're surrounded in this cave with 600 men who don't have any weapons. They have clubs and pitchforks, and all of them are frozen in indecision. They have no idea what to do. It's a sad, pitiful scene. But friends, there is a lion in England. There is a sword in Israel. You see this scene and you watch a young man named Jonathan, who's Saul's son, pacing back and forth in this cave. He's one of those pencil tappers. You know, those people who are just kind of sitting with nervous energy and he's saying, Dad, is this our plan? We're just going to sit here and we're going to let the Philistines go north and they're going to do whatever they want to our people and we're not going to do anything about them. So Jonathan makes a plan. He grabs his armor bearer and in secret he says, we're going to go into enemy territory and we're going to do something about this. And they go. Now what unfolds, I just want to make one interpretive remark about this. This is the only point of the entire sermon. It's the point we will run to catch up with and that is this. Jesus wins the world that Jonathan lives in. Jesus wins the world that Jonathan lives in. Jonathan grabs his armor bearer. They come to the edge of this cliff. It goes down one side and up the other. I've seen pictures of this thing. It is extremely rigorous climb. And he goes down and up the other side and he strikes a fatal blow to this garrison in the Philistine camp, which turns the tide of the entire war. Israel is able to win this war because of this battle. Now, what happens there, the symbolism of what happens will be lost on everyone for a thousand years until a certain Jesus of Nazareth on a certain road to Emmaus will open his disciples' minds to understand that all of Scripture points to and speaks about him. Jonathan's standing on this cliff. It's a, it's a south-facing cliff, and the name of it is Bozes, which means thorny. And he gets so deep into this thing that when he shows himself to the Philistines, when they look out over their garrison and see down where Jonathan is, it looks like he's coming out of a cave where Israelites had been hiding. And of course, in Jonathan's day, an Israelite would have used a cave as a tomb. 
I'm going to tell this story, and I want you to stop me if this sounds familiar, because I'm talking about 1 Samuel 14, which happens circa 1050 B.C. The king's son descends into the valley of the shadow of death, a tomb-like place, only to resurrect up the other side and to deal a fatal blow to all who have come to steal and kill and destroy. Do you see the power of prefigurement here? Do you see the gospel trembling in this little story? That vision is before us. We see that screaming to us. We often talk about the gospel as this wonderful story of good news, a story of peace and of hope and of love. And it is that if you are standing in Gibeah. But if you are a principality or a power who finds yourself on the Micmash side of things, the story of the gospel is a very different story. Colossians 2.15 captures the violence of the cross. Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. The reason we can sit with one another and ask the question, who can bring a charge against God's elect is because Jesus has won the war and he has put to the end of his double-edged sword any demonic prosecutor who would stand against us. The reason we can say to a fellow believer we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes is because Jesus has flattened the garrison. There is no war room Satan has left that we are not privy to and that we don't understand. The reason that we can say to one another that sin and death have lost their sting is because Jesus has taken the weight of this sting of sin and death on himself and he has resurrected the other side and sits at the right hand of God the Father. When we talk about these things with each other, these are not just bromide platitudes meant to stroke each other's sensibilities. These aren't niceties. These are not just nuggets of timeless truths that will kind of get each other through our work days. These are military maneuvers with real life consequences. Because Jesus did this, because his cross accomplishes this, because he put powers and principalities to open shame, that affects the way you and I live in the world that Jesus has won. You walk out of this room and you meet an unbeliever who is possessed by a demon. And in the world in which Jesus has won, you cast that out by Jesus's name. Why? Because his name is above every other name. You meet a fellow Christian who is steeped in addiction. They tell you, I've struggled with pornography for so long, I can't even imagine being different or changing or living differently. And you tell them as a fellow believer, that's not the case in this world. In this world, the world that Jesus has won, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have escaped the snare of the evil one having been held captive by him to do his will. In the world that Jesus won, we can be free from addiction. When we ourselves, when we begin to hear the weightiness of the accusations of our sin, when we hear that voice inside of us say that we're not worthy, we're wicked, we're not lovable, 
we understand that shamed people shame people. That because the devil has been put to open shame, what he has left is to throw fiery darts of self-loathing at us in, in the world that Jesus won. That is not the final word for us. This world that Jesus reigns over, it's a different world. It's a world we live in because of what he's accomplished. But we're kind of getting our head ahead of ourselves here because we say that Jesus won the world that Jonathan lives in. But Jonathan, by this point in our story, he's a thousand years from Jesus. He doesn't understand these things. Um, Jonathan is not privy to the gospel. He's not privy to what Jesus will do. He doesn't know Colossians 2 or 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy. Jonathan surely did not see himself as a type of Christ. He didn't see this little battle as something that will prefigure what Jesus will do against powers and principalities. And yet, Jonathan is living in the world that Jesus has won because Jonathan is operating in a world where God loves his people and he intervenes to work on behalf of his people. Whether Jonathan knows how God is going to work that world out or not, that's still the world that Jonathan is living in and enjoys. And we can actually watch him understand this world by looking at verse 6. He speaks about this world, and we're going to see three elements of the way he sees it. Look at, look at chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is a, a really tight creed that Jonathan gives us. Jonathan is saying, this is my reformed world and life view, but it's a life view that I'm about to take a next step into. And there's three components to this thing that I want us to see. You reach into the, the middle of this thing and he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Can you imagine if we thought and understood and believed that item of Jonathan's creed? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Jonathan views God at the absolute center of the world and the universe and the cosmos. And there is not a height or a depth or a principality or a power that can shorten the arm of God to save. If our creeds, if the way we articulate our worldview are crippled by these hindrances, if we start making footnotes and caveats to the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, then we have begun to imagine a world, a dystopian world, that is different than the one that Jesus has won. There is nothing, nothing that can hinder the Lord from saving. Look at the second component. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. So you see, Jonathan views God at the center of his saving work, but Jonathan doesn't view himself sharing that center with God. God is going to do his work, and Jonathan understands that he takes a very side role to that. He says, the Lord may do this. Perhaps the Lord may do this. We can tell each other emphatically that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, that every single knee in here and beyond will bow before him. But I cannot give you one hint as to the role in which you or I will play in Jesus' saving work. 
I can tell you emphatically that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has removed its sting definitively. But I can't promise you or myself that we will live to see tomorrow. Because if God stands at the center of the action of his saving work, Jonathan understands that the only place left for him is a supporting role that hasn't been scripted yet. He's not going to share center stage with God. He says, it may be that the Lord will use us to save. That's the positive way of saying the negative. Jonathan very well could have said, it may also be that the Lord doesn't. That we climb and meet this garrison and we are struck down and go through history unnamed. And tomorrow or the next day, or a thousand years from now, God will raise up the hero that he is going to use to save. God is at the center of his saving work, not me. Sometimes when we have a friend who's interested in somebody pursuing another person, we kind of sit him down and we ask him some questions. Why do you like this person? What is it about them? And then there's always this zinger of a question. I don't know if you've ever asked somebody this or it's been asked you, but you can say to a person, would you want this person, man or woman, to live happily ever after, even if it weren't with you? That's a tough question. I don't even know if that's a fair question to ask somebody who's interested in somebody else. But essentially what you're trying to get at is, are you interested in this person's happiness for its own sake? Or is this person a means to an end for your happiness? And that's a great question to ask. I think about myself as a pastor who longs for good fruit in this city. I want to see people born again. I want to see people come to faith in Christ. I want to see people discipled. I want to see churches planted. I plead for that. I really do pray for that and long for that. What if God chooses to consistently answer that prayer in a church up the road and a different pastor than myself? Would I celebrate the victory that God is bringing? What if I'm a person who's praying for a spouse? I long to be married and I want this more than anything. And God chooses to answer that prayer, but he answers it for my best friend and not for me. Do I celebrate what God is doing? What if I'm pursuing my kids and I long for a deep relationship with them and the Lord chooses to bring another person, not me, to be their closest connection and confidant? Do I celebrate that? In other words, Are these prayers, are these longings about the kingdom or are they about me? Because when I read a story like 1 Samuel 14, I want to be Jonathan. There's nobody else in this story that I want to be. I don't even want to be the unnamed armor bearer. I want to be Jonathan. I want to see things happen. But what if I don't get to be that? What if I'm one of these unnamed Israelites in the north country who is struck down by one of these raiding parties and no one ever hears about me? What then? Is God still good? Is God still good if I don't get to be Jonathan? Do I say with Eli in chapter 3, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him? Or do I count the goodness of God in direct relation to my centeredness on the stage? Is God good when I'm at the center? But is he good when I play this unnamed supporting role? Don't ask me that question. If you ask me that question this week, I'll tell you to mind your own business. I I don't want to be asked that because this tugs at a deep, deep idol in my heart. 
This is the world that Jesus won. I don't get to be at the center of that world. Number three, Jonathan says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, Jonathan understands that his role is a supporting, unscripted role, but that's different from thinking that he has no role at all, because what he understands this world to work as God's ordinary means of saving and interacting with the world is by many or by few. Sometimes God takes a bunch of people and a bunch of resources and a bunch of great gifts in a room, and he uses it to change the landscape of a city. And sometimes... God takes very few people and very few gifts and very unlikely personalities and he uses those means to change the world. And yet at the same time, God's ordinary way of working within the world is to use people. Jonathan understands that. I'm amazed by that scene in Acts 1-8 where Jesus gives the marching orders of the entire church. He says, I want you to go to the corners of this globe and preach the gospel. I want you to spend every resource at your disposal, and I want every city and town and village from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to hear the good news of the gospel. And the camera pans left, and you realize who he's talking to. It's 11 men from the sticks of Galilee who are scared to death. They don't know what to do. Jonathan is saying, in the world in which God uses people, many or few, whatever gift mix, he wants to step into the fray and be counted among the used. Jesus wins the world that Jonathan lives in. It's a world where God is not hindered. It's a world where I do not stand at the center of God's saving work. And it's a world in which there's not a single gift mix or personality type or painful story in my past that God cannot use to build his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, as much as this world rages against our sensibilities and maybe even our own estimation of our importance, I pray that this is the world that we as the church would live in, the world that Jesus has won. Give us courage to live and act and obey within this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.